Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Gotti Kaufman, CEO of RCLCO, and welcome to the Best Minds in Real Estate interview series. We have a very special guest today, uh, Andy Coyne, co-CEO of uh, Gensler. Hello, Andy. How are you? Good to see you, Gotti. How are you doing? Good to have you as well. Um, just quickly, logistics. This is a live taping of something that's going to go on the YouTube channel of RCLCO. Uh, but for today, it's going to function more like a webinar. Josh Boren, say hello, Josh. How are you? Good to have you there. Hey, guys. How are you? Uh, Josh is going to act as our uh, screener for questions from the audience. So we encourage anyone who has any questions to please post them. Josh will interject as we go along. Andy and I will try to have a conversation for roughly 30 or 45 minutes, and then we'll allocate about 15 minutes at the end for Q&A, but of course, um, Josh will be jumping in whenever you think uh, is the right time. Okay, we do, Josh? Great, super. Great. So, uh, Andy Cohen, for the very few people on this call who may not know him, is co-CEO of Gensler. Uh, Andy and I are same age, and uh, we launched our professional careers at uh, just about the same uh, time. Uh, Andy is a lifer at Gensler. He's joined in 1981 after graduating from the Pratt Institute uh, as a uh, architectural designer and has progressed through the ranks very nicely, uh, just like uh, I did at Orsielco uh, as a lifer uh, and became a member of the board of directors of Gensler in 2003 and became co-CEO uh, in 2005. He's been uh, running the company through an evolution it is absolutely remarkable. We'll talk about that in a moment, Andy. I look forward to it. But today, Gensler has got 6,000 people in uh, 48 offices serving clients in 120 countries in the world. And I doubt there are any clients in any other countries or they would be Gensler clients. Correct, Andy? Exactly, Gary. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. So, Great to have you, Andy. And I know that COVID-19 gives us all an excuse to have more time for meetings like this, that's regrettable, but we do see the silver lining in the whole thing. We get to connect and, uh, and, and keep in touch with one another. Uh, I invited you, Andy, because I wanted to chat with you about uh, your career in the evolution of Gensler, which I think are very closely linked to one another, as an expression, as an example of how innovation, creativity, and thought leadership uh, can inform strategy and evolution of an organization from what it was 40 years ago, a relatively small local company, to a, a global organization that continues to exercise and, and produce creative solutions for uh, real estate architecture and planning. So that is what we wanted to do, but perhaps before we launch into it, you might want to give us a little bit more on your background. How did you come to be you are. Well, first, Gaddy, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I so admire what you have done personally and your firm as a leader in real estate. It, it's remarkable. Our, our careers really have paralleled one another. And I so appreciate our incredibly long term relationship. So thank, thank you for you. having thank me. You. you know, it's interesting. I, I was uh, brought up in New York and uh, I told this story to a lot of young people who join our firm because uh, it's an important one about a big lesson learned that has driven my whole life, which is uh, I grew up, uh, I was born in the Bronx, New York. Uh, my 
great-grandfather uh, started a dairy store on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and left it to my grandfather, who then left it to my father, and it was called Cohen's Dairy. And I, growing up, worked in the dairy store pretty much since I was like five years old. So my whole way of customer service, my whole way of thinking comes from working in a dairy store. If you ever want to know Gotti about cheese and milk, I know everything about every kind of cheese known to man. And what I, uh, you know, about, uh, I, I really loved sketching and drawing growing up uh, and putting things together. And uh, I took some classes in high school and I discovered that I really loved architecture. And so uh, right about then, unfortunately, my dad found out that he had cancer. And we had a decision to make as a family. And the decision was, do I take over the dairy store or pursue my career in architecture? And, I'll, and this is the lesson learned that I tell young people all the time is, I learned right then, my dad came to me and said, you know what, I, we're going to sell the store, even though it was your great-grandfather's store and your father's store, because you need to follow your passion. You need to follow what you love to do. And he saw that I loved architecture. I just got accepted to Pratt Institute. And unfortunately, a few months after this conversation, he passed away. And I went on in my whole life, I've been following my passion. And uh, to this day, I always say all the time, I love what I do every day. So if you follow your path, I tell this to my kids all the time, if you follow what you love to do, if you follow your passion, you can accomplish anything in life. So right after that, I, right after my dad passed away, we sold the store and I really wanted to get out of New York. And so I moved to California and I interviewed at this relatively startup firm. There were about 10 people at Gensler in LA uh, and started at Gensler. And that started my 40 year career working at Gensler, which uh, has been a phenomenal run for me. I didn't think I was ever going to be CEO of Gensler, but I also didn't think we were going to be 6,000 people, with 50 offices. So it's been a remarkable run, and I feel like it goes back to my dad's words of follow your passion, you can accomplish anything you want in life. Andy, you, like I, uh, had the, uh, the privilege, the pleasure of working with a great mentor, Arthur Gensler, Bob Lester, actually contemporary, Arthur was a little older, but uh, uh, similarly big personalities, big people, very smart, very insightful, very visionary. Uh, how did it come to be that you ended up uh, on the path for leadership, what role did you did uh, Arthur play in that uh, evolution and development? Yeah, Arthur's an amazing leader and an amazing man, and he started our firm, believe it or not, uh, and he was always looking at things differently than other architects and designers. So he started our firm in 1965, so we're 55 years old as a firm, looking at buildings from the inside out, from the human experience. And, you know, by looking at it differently at the time, no other designers were looking at the human experience for, you know, designing for people and art looked at it that way. And that's what spurred the firm on starting as an interior design firm. And then when I joined the firm, the firm was just starting to get into buildings and airports and other types of structures. Uh, and art's philosophy of looking at the world differently, looking at how you can improve human experience really spurred me on in my career. He also created uh, in our firm that sticks with us today, and it's remarkable how much it's in, in our blood and in our DNA, is an idea called the one firm firm. And that is the idea that we're one integrated practice around the world, that we're all in this together, that we sink or swim together. And that those ethos, those values that Art had, and now Diane Hoskins, my partner, and I have, and moved on, 
are what hold our firm together. It's the glue that allows all of our people. We're very flat, very non, we're non-hierarchical, and it allows us to excel around the world because we believe we're all in this together. Uh, to, you know, to, to create a better, our, our uh, vision is to create a better world through the power of design. And that's what Art instilled in us. And we continue, we're the, now the second generation of the firm and hopefully onto the third generation of the firm. That's, that's an amazing story. Very much mirrors the kind of values that Bob Lesser uh, instilled in us as we were uh, coming in. He started the firm at about the same time, 1965. Uh, in, I don't know if you knew this, but Bob Lesser did have an architectural career first. He's a master's in architecture from, from Cal, came back to ah. and started his own architectural firm in the late 50s, sold it in the early 60s, and then got into this business, the, the consulting business, but brought with him the sensitivity to precisely the same set of issues, that design uh, is not about aesthetics, it's about the living experience. It's not what it looks like, it's what it lives like, as a home, as an office, as a park, as whatever. And those values, today I still get chills because 40 years later, this is what we try to instill in our young people. And uh, the, the second lesson, the one of one firm, that was the one that we had to come by the hard way. We, we went the other way and then came eventually uh, about 20 years ago to the solution that one firm is way better than a profit center oriented uh, collection exactly. of offices. Exactly. So congratulations. So, you know, with uh, 10 or 20 people in 1981 or two when you joined the firm, to 6,000 people, yet perpetuating across 6,000 people, 48 offices, this culture of innovation, of thinking about design forward, thinking about the living, the experience of the customer, of the user, the tenant. How do you do it? How do you and Diane keep that culture alive and keep that message vibrant? By having phenomenal leaders. I mean, over my 40 years, I've, you know, many, many people in our firm have been with our firm 10, 20, 30 years in the firm combined with incredibly fresh talent that joins our firm and moving our vision. And every 10 years, we, you know, we focus on the next 10 years. In fact, we're in that strategy right now. We're in 2020, we're focused on 2030 and what the world's gonna look like 10 years from now. And that has spurred us on every 10 years around, ironically, around the time of the recession is the time, as we know in 2009, 2010, that was a great recession. Right. We created a vision for 2020. Now we're creating a vision for 2030. So we're always focused on the future. We're always focused on collaboration. In our firm, we have two or three leaders in every single leadership role in our firm. And we do that because we believe that one plus one equals five, that when you have great leaders, everyone has aces and spaces. You're great at some things, Gaddy, and not so great at things. I'm great at some things, not so great at things. But when you put leaders together with different aces and different spaces, that creates a dynamic leadership model that works and it works around the globe. So we have 50 offices, we have 100 office leaders, two, two office leaders in every single office. We have 26 practice areas. You know, we're involved in office buildings and airports and retail centers and hotels and all the different types of uh, you know, residential, all the different types of uses in real estate, but we have two leaders in those roles. And that allows us to collaborate around the world and, and frankly get more leverage around the world with our client relationships, you know, with our key client relationships. That's really spurred us on. I think the second thing is, is that we're, uh, 
you know, as you said, we're really focused on the future and how design has a unique and profound role, really unique, profound role and make a difference in the world. You know, every day our firm impacts millions of people's lives, how they live, how they work, how they play, how they're educated. And surely right now about health and wellness, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about right. health and wellness. And so, you know, that those ethos around the human experience, we're focused on the human experience and the future of those areas is what we're all about. It's an awesome responsibility to have. Uh, and I, I will never forget when 1984, I think it was, when the Delta Terminal at LAX opened up. Uh, and I, you know, I've been traveling, obviously, like you and everybody else a lot. And I walked into that building at, uh, for the first time and I said, wow, this is amazing. This place is going to live for a long time. It's timeless. And this is now 36 years later. And that terminal continues to be the most vibrant at LAX, with the exception of the International Terminal, which I think you have designed as well. <laughs> Thank you. So, Thank you, Gaddy. Uh... Kudos for that. But is, is, is innovation, creativity, is it nature or is it nurture? In other words, when you look to bring on team members, so 6,000 team members, are you able to select for creativity and innovation? Do you teach that? How, how, how do you end up so consistent across the board and I understand what you're saying about reinforcing through messaging and strategy, et cetera. But still, people, when, when your messaging session is over, 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, the next 365 and a half days a year, they're going to be doing nothing but they're going to be on their own. So is it nature or is it nurture? Well, I think innovation and, we, you know, you study leaders like Steve Jobs as an example. Innovation comes through diversity of thinking. So we're looking for leaders who bring new ideas to the table and creativity to the table. So we, you know, we really believe that people coming from different backgrounds, different cultures, different countries, different perspectives actually add to the value of creating those innovative strategies. So many times we have two, three, four offices working together on projects from different perspectives, different designers looking at the world differently. And by coalescing and coming together in a non-hierarchical fashion and really sharing ideas, we believe that that's what creates, like you said, the Delta Terminal. That's what creates the sparks that fly that create new ideas in the world. And so, you know, we, we have innovated literally across so many parts of our platform this way by having this diversity of thinking, of thought leadership. We also have, uh, we created about 15 years ago, the Gensler Research Institute. And the Gensler Research Institute, we have people that are full-time, that's all they're focused on is creating and researching thought leadership of the latest trends that are going on in the industry. Uh, you see it a lot right now, obviously, with COVID-19, with all the strategies that are coming forth. That's the way we think. We're always thinking about um, the world five, 10 years from now, and what the implications of what's happening right now and the impact on that. And we reach across our 6,000 people and pull the best ideas forward. It's that, again, back to this collaborative, one firm, firm approach that allows us in a way to pull together all these diverse ideas and strategies together that coalesce into these new building types, these new ideas around the future of design. In itself, the fact that you have the Research Institute, the fact that you do do thought leadership uh, is uh, unique. You know, architectural firms where you think, you know, great designers design great, great buildings and uh, win awards, and that's that. But 
that's not the way you think about it. So that's one evolution, clearly. What else has changed over the last 40 years? Kind of some of the bigger changes at uh, Gensler uh, that may explain how you got to where you are. Well, I started to explain, we really, at, when I first joined the firm, we were really focused on the insides of buildings. And I think that, that ethos, that DNA that's inside of us, really drove us to how people live, work, and play in the spaces they're in. Not the outsides of the buildings, per se, to start with, but how they work, how they're programmed, how they perform for people. From that, um, you know, over the years, we progressed into other fields, like, obviously, like other types of building types that we're in. And we've take, we took that learning of looking at it from the inside out, buildings from the inside out, the human experience, and progressed that into everything we were doing along the way that allowed us to you know, innovate along the way and really think about these strategies differently. While most architects are looking at what the building is from the outside and it's total aesthetic, we're looking at the building for its performance is it really satisfying the users that are inside? Is it creating exhilarating experiences versus the building as an object? You know, architects like to think of buildings as objects. We like to think of buildings as performance-based, as you know, are they really uh, creating that wonderful experience that people are looking for in life? No. If you go back 10, if you could go back 10 years ago, what have you missed in your vision 2020 back in 2010? What, what turned out to be different and what, could, what would you have done differently if you could? Good question. You know, I, I, you know as I started, I, you know, I'm always following my passion. I'm working with you know, my partners and my partner, Diane Hoskins. You know, honestly, I think we've, we, I wouldn't have changed anything. Every time we've set a vision, every time we've set the bar really high, we really set the bar high, we exceed these visions. So you know, I, I think it's about brainstorming and you know, the ideas of the future and the trends of the future, and then going and reaching for the stars. You know, uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a remarkable run. I, there are things that I would have never predicted in my career. I think I was mentioning to you this before, like I would have never predicted COVID-19 and the pandemic hitting us right now. But within that, it, you know, strategy was the idea that potentially something's gonna come on that's gonna impact our world and impact, impact the real estate industry. So. Um, I don't know if I would have changed much at all. I think it, it's creating that flexible structure that allows you to morph and change, especially during times like these, that allows you to excel and makes your career even better in a lot of ways and, and makes the firm better in a lot of ways. So I'd like to come back in a few minutes to um, your vision 2030, which you're in the middle of developing. So I'd like to know what you think, um, how the world will be different than you from now. But before we go there, what do you consider to have been your uh, greatest achievement in the last 10 or 20 years, 15 years as, as CEO, what, what, you know, co-CEO? I think it's all, you know, we're such a people first organization. I, I, I think it's about, you know, mentoring and coaching and creating a firm that's about our people and about the future of the world and how design has that impact. I mean, for me, that's been an amazing, just a thrill. It's an amazing thrill. And, uh, and honor. And so I, to me, that's the pinnacle of it all is, is people. You know, we design for people. We, we're all about people. And, uh, you know, our creativity and leadership in our firm is just phenomenal. So I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that 
you know, we, uh, we created a framework for a firm that we thought at the beginning could maybe be, you know, $100 million in fees. And now last year we passed a $1.5 billion in fees. Uh, in 2010, we were about 300 million in total fees. And again, this year we're 1.5 billion. So it's uh, creating that vision and strategy and moving it forward and the fulfillment of knowing that everyone is in this together and every, you know, we're all in this together and we all win together. And is all this growth organic, uh, the same people growing and developing, or are you bolting on companies and people from the outside? It's a great question. Our strategy from the beginning has always been that we're going to grow naturally and organically because our culture, as I explained, is so important to us, right. you know, about trust and respect and integrity. And, and I mentioned partnership that ultimately at the end of the day was always about um, our people. And so we didn't want to acquire firms that would have another type of culture that we had to match. It's been hard. It's been harder than acquiring other firms. When you acquire firms, it's easy to you know, pick up other types of work or other offices. So we've grown naturally to the 50 offices I mentioned. You know, they, we, first we grew in the United States, then we opened up in Europe, and since then now we've opened up in, in Asia and now India and the Middle East. So it's grown organically, but that whole uh, core philosophy is the same. Whether it was 100 people or whether it was 6,000 people, yeah. It's about, you know, creating a better world through the power of design. So it's been, it's been a remarkable run. So in an organization- I'm going to jump in real quick, Gotti, if I can, with the question. I'm sorry, just uh, mm -hmm. watching the monitor here. You know, I think, Andy, you talked a lot about, about that expansion in the different cities you're in. I think one of the biggest uh, growth factors, or at least a big change here in Los Angeles, was the move in the last decade to downtown. And Gensler really kind of being one of the first major employers to kind of make that shift. And it almost seemed like it- coincided with LA growing as well. How much of it's been the people, as you said, but also kind of being in the right place at the right time or, or strategically locating in the right places? Yeah, we've always tried, one of our key goals is to be embedded in the cities that we're in, to be um, you know, really part of the city, giving back to the community, being part of the future of that city. And at the time, this was 2010 again, the recession was going on. And we felt like uh, our look in being in Santa Monica, we weren't at the heart of where a lot of our clients were or part of, especially with the city of LA, because we were partnering with the city of LA with so many projects. So we felt the move downtown was important uh, for the city, for our people from a commuting standpoint, it made a lot more sense to be essentially located downtown. And obviously for giving back to the community, we were involved in so many projects in LA, uh, you know, a couple of key, pro you know, Big key project was obviously LA Live that we were involved with and, and the renaissance that took place in that southern part of Los Angeles that took place. So for us, you'll see in every one of the cities that we're located in, for the most part, we try to locate our offices on the ground floor. Our LA office is located in the ground floor. Uh, and the reason why we do that is because we want to open it up to the city. We want people to come in. Our space is used by different groups like ULI. I know you guys have had meetings there because we want it to be a community space. We want to be you know, embedded in that local community and, and the goals and aspirations of that community. We open up our office to outside events all the time just for that purpose to, to make sure that we are you know, uh, partnering with the latest organizations in, in that city. That's a great question. Thank you, Josh. Uh, <clears throat> so Andy, let's talk about Vision 2030. Sure. What, what is, what is the, you know, the, the reach goals for your 2030 strategy? 
we've really focused over the last few years, and again, now it's really coming to pass with COVID-19, is um, the idea of shaping the future of cities. And we've really taken that on and taking on, as I mentioned, we're impacting millions of people's lives every day and how they live, work, and play. So we're taking on the world's greatest challenges. We felt we're now the, you know, an admired firm, one of the largest firms in the world, that we should take on its biggest challenges. You know, challenges like urbanization, challenges like climate change. And, uh, you know, you could see how important uh, climate change is right now. And you could see, uh, you know, the impact of what's happened with health and wellness with the pandemic and how I, we believe it's almost a precursor to climate change that's coming. You know, why cities? Cities, and for the first time in human history, cities have more people than the suburbs for the first time. In the United States, 70% of people live in cities. 70% of all CO2 is created in cities. 80% of all GDP is in cities. So we felt as a design firm, again, embedded in our local communities is the idea of really focusing in on these key challenges. So I mentioned climate change and the issues all around climate change and how a lot of people don't know this, but buildings are over 40% of all CO2 emissions come from buildings. So we believe it's our responsibility to really step forward and design buildings of the future that really conserve energy or in the future will probably be more about net zero. That is not taking energy from the grid, but giving energy back from the grid. We're focused on the, around cities, around the future of mobility. And you know that I've been out there speaking about driverless cars in our future, probably by 2035, that's gonna change the nature of our cities, the way the, you know, the city streets now are dominate our cities, cars dominate our cities in the future. We have the ability to take our city streets back for people because with driverless cars, with autonomous vehicles, the cars will, won't be parking on the city streets. We're gonna be able to use parking stalls, uh, parking spaces that cars won't be parked in for amenity space and green space and restaurant space, but not parking spaces. So mobility, whether it's mass transportation or driverless cars, we've been focused on that. And then we've been focused on this whole idea around connected cities, which now is coming to pass during COVID-19, which is about smart cities of the future, connected cities through technology. And then the last piece that we've been laser focused on is housing, the shortage of housing and homelessness that's occurring in our cities. And making sure that as architects and designers, we're dealing with this issue of homelessness and helping to solve that problem. Andy, one thing you didn't mention uh, is um, what became vividly apparent in the last few weeks, and that is inequality and the implications of it. And how uh, in 2030, how all the factors that you describe conspire, but also are compounded by uh, what's likely to be a higher tax environment, possibly a defunding and maybe a successful reinvention or not of police and in uh, public safety, uh, and certainly rising, most likely rising inequality from income and opportunity point of view. I don't know that an architect has the responsibility to solve that, but as you think about 2030, how does that play into the overall strategy that companies and organizations ought to have and what you as a planner and a visionary of the future can inform? Well, as I said, our goal, one of our key vision is to redefine the future of cities. So certainly equitable, 
you know, cities is really, really important. And our firm is really focused on that right now. We're focused uh, not only internally within our firm, but focusing on recruiting and mentor mentoring, the, you know, the best, uh, best of every community, obviously the best of the black community. Uh, we have a great program with uh, universities called NOMA, where we're recruiting and mentoring and coaching great students that are coming out in the black community. But as importantly, as internally, as externally, and that's with, as I mentioned, we're embedded in our local cities. So we're working in specific areas of the city where design can make a difference to people, where design can change communities, where creating live, work, and play environments, mixed-use environments can really you know, massively change the perspective of people that live in that city. And so, and it's a, all cities are made up of every type of, uh, you know, demographic. And so we believe in designing cities for everyone, for the demographics that exist in that city. So we're laser focused right now, for example, in Los Angeles, in South Central Los Angeles, on, you know, bringing along great projects that, you know, will change the lives of people. And then back again, again, we're, we're really focused on creating scholarships for, uh, you know, black students and so forth that can come into our firm and really, uh, you know, really excel. So um, I could tell you we our firm is so focused because we're so focused on cities, we're focused on that equitable future. On the and I also mentioned the diversity of our thinking, which is so important. So we encourage, you know, people from around the world from different ethnicities from around the world, from different cultures, to contribute to the innovation that we're creating around the world. With all sincerity, I really appreciate those efforts, and I really admire you for taking the initiative and being as committed to these uh, issues and topics. It doesn't help solve what I believe to be a fundamental challenge in advancing these topics, and that is cost. You know, everything that not everything, but most of what you do involves development or substantial redevelopment of existing underutilized facilities and spaces, but that's expensive. And just the cost of doing business before even accounting for red tape and, uh, and, and regulations, just the cost of doing business for hard construction cost puts almost everything out of reach for the average person, let alone somebody below the average income. So uh, are you collaborating with others who are thinking about fiscal solutions, political solutions, so you can come up with a physical solutions, design solutions for these problems? i give you lots of examples of how we're working on trying to create really cost-effective design. So an example of this is we're working on low-cost housing where it could be pre-manufactured housing, you know, where it comes out already assembled in place. We're working on homelessness housing right now where we're trying to drive down the cost of homeless housing to the absolute minimum that would provide a great quality of life for homeless person uh, where, you know, we're creating these you know, prefabricated units that come together that could be multiplied out and solve the problem. We're, we're in the middle of that right now. There's so many ways within design that we can create efficiencies that help to solve these problems. It's not always about the high cost solution. It's supposed to the most efficient solution. Right. And frankly, the way of leveraging design to try to solve these problems. I really believe, for example, in housing, which is so important today, that we have equitable housing, that we have cost-effective housing that's done in a way that is not only economical, but also improves the human experience that creates great public spaces for people to gather on or green spaces. So uh, I believe design is at the forefront in a lot of ways of solving these, 
solving these issues. If we, if we really innovate, if we really put our minds to it as a combined real estate community, we can solve a lot of these problems. And we are. We are really working on these major issues. I commend you, congratulate you, and encourage you to continue the efforts, Andy. This, this is really important stuff, and not enough good people are spending enough time on it. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the future of real estate. So you kind of painted a quick vision, high-level vision of what 2030 um, urban uh, environments look like. Uh, you talked about the challenges of urbanization, climate change, mobility, uh, connected, connected smart cities, and of course, the housing especially affordable housing and homelessness. So what is your advice to developers, owners, operators, uh, and investors? Uh, and let's kind of take it segment by segment. What about office buildings? What, if, if you are in the business, what's your advice to players in the business? Well, my advice today would be, is a lot different than it was six months ago. Because I think that uh, with the coronavirus, it's really impacted how we're looking at that right now. We're doing a hell of a lot of research around that. We just came out with our recommendations around the reentry back to back to office, and uh, using that as an example. But it, it really is an example with coronavirus of all different types of building types today. With the office, what we've developed is a, a way of creating a kit of parts for reentry that makes sense for people to be safe within the office, uh, and then obviously in the future it's going to really change. This is going to impact the future of office buildings. So for example, we're looking at the idea that buildings today and in the future are going to have to be touchless, frictionless spaces where, uh, you know, you'll check in and you'll have biometric feedback that'll let you know, uh, you know, the, you'll already know who you are so that when you go on the elevator, it'll have the button pressed to know which floor you're going on to. Um, technology, we're integrating a lot of technology today that will ultimately, I believe, be the office building of the future for tomorrow. Um, and so using that as an example, we're focused on the re-entry, but we're also focused on what we call the reimagined future. So I'll use an example of, uh, you know, office space. You know, we, the pendulum had swung so much to open office plant. And one of the biggest issues we're dealing with right now with coronavirus is the open office plan because of the distancing that's going to occur. So we're designing new workstations right now that'll work where people aren't facing one another, like the stations of today. Um, so I really believe that this COVID-19 and a lot of different strategies we're putting in place, from how air handling is done and outside air is brought into space, how we need to create more indoor-outdoor spaces, um, to how people check in in a lobby and, and get screened in a lobby, are going to massively change the way office buildings of the future are. Um, again, I, I do think in every field, office, starting with office, but going to hospitality, going to retail, this is going to shift how people think about these spaces and how people approach them, how they use them, uh, and how we have to make them more, as I said, touchless and frictionless in environments. So the implications are if somebody owns real estate, multifamily, lodging, retail, certainly office, uh, they should be prepared to make some investments to upgrade or to make the space more contemporary, touchless, and et cetera, correct? That, that's one implication. Uh, if yeah, I think there's, I think it's, it's two steps, Gaddy. I think right now, we're focused on that right now, is everyone's focused on re-entry. So what do they need to do to get their people back in to an office? What does a hotel need to do to get back open? What does a retail store need to open up and so forth? So there are these, you know, rudimentary 
and important elements. For example, signage and graphics is an example. You know, how the elevators work in your building is an example, because you can only get three or four people on an elevator at a time based on the spacing. Mm -hmm. right. So I'll use that as an example. Um, there'll be a, now a technology app on your phone that will allow you to have a time to know when to go up in your elevator in the building so that you know, we don't have long lines in our office buildings because that's the choke point right now and they get back into offices. Right. Use that as an example. A lot of buildings right now are talking about using their fire stairs in lower, lower buildings because people will walk up and down rather than wait for the elevator. Right. So those kind of thinking that are going into the specific reentry right now and then in the long term, absolutely the implications of trying to create environments that anticipate now pandemics. You know, it was more about the work efficiency. Now it's about, you know, future, future issues around pandemics and making through the use of technology, smart technology, um, you know, these spaces that really would become seamless in their use. So between now and 2030, when we see new office buildings coming to service, how are they going to be different fundamentally other than the touchless technology you just talked about, better filtration systems, but, but does anything else change in a fundamental way? Yeah, I think, all, I think that in take office, for example, the layouts are going to change. You know, those big open planned spaces with desks that go on forever and ever that are facing one another, it's going to change. Uh, how, we, how we bring people together is going to change. Um, you know, from the large conference rooms that we had before uh, to more breakout spaces and smaller group gatherings, as an example. More, um, uh, you know, impromptu spaces for people to break out into in smaller groups and so forth. I don't think we're going back in office to the offices around the perimeter of the floor plate, but I do think that the nature of work, which was going to mostly open plan, 95 open, open plan in an office is now going to take a step, a different step, not back to separate offices, but more into smaller group gatherings where people can get together and communicate and collaborate. So let's dig into that a little bit. 10 years ago, the new, new thing was hoteling and sharing space and having maybe larger space per worker, but not dedicated. So you can have more people working there, but since not everybody's there, you can do hoteling. That seems to have kind of flopped, hasn't it? Well, I think, I think groups, I can say the word, I can think groups like WeWork were struggling already, that the market was just so big. And what I was hearing already from our enterprise clients were that those spaces weren't branded. They weren't about the specific organization you work for. They, you were, they were ubiquitous. So you walked into one WeWork, it was just like every other WeWork. So there was no sense of culture or belonging. So already our enterprise clients were saying they didn't want that. It would be used for flex space, but not for real organizational space. Mm -hmm. And now with COVID-19 and what's happening, I think it's transition, complete transitioning away from that. Now, obviously, we're going to have a vaccine. I haven't mentioned this yet. We, there will be a vaccine. Hopefully, I pray, and you tell me when it's going to happen, but hopefully first quarter next year. And hopefully that will solve a lot of these problems. But it's the nature of what we've learned during this pandemic that's going to change the nature of space and how we work and how we have to create different types of uses, not just all open plan and not just all closed offices, but a combination of both that's going to create the office building of the future. Mm -hmm. There's so much we can talk more about this uh, topic, but let's kind of quickly survey the other property types. Uh, what, what is going to be different in, in hotels and uh, maybe multifamily apartments and condominiums? You know, right now, every 
one of these type building types is looking for that good housekeeping seal of what clean what clean and safety looks like. And so, I'm uh, talking to a lot of my a lot of our hospitality clients. They're all trying to put in place, you know, strict cleaning codes, strict ways of organizing the spaces so that they're easily cleanable, um, and getting a a, 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 a strategy around. Um, cleanability and um, like a good housekeeping sale that would be, occur within each one of these types of businesses, whether it's hotels, whether it's live performance. It, but again, I still will tell you, taking hotels for example, that now check-in will probably be more on your phone. And you'll check-in, you won't have to go to the front desk. Your, your phone will be able to be the key release to your door so you won't have to touch the door. Uh, in the connected city or the hotel of the future, it'll already know how the lighting settings you want, the temperature settings you want. So I really believe that technology is going to be one of the solutions for hospitality. It still won't, it won't be able to fix the idea that a hotel room needs to be cleaned every day. And that's why protocols around cleaning is going to be so important. How they're cleaned, when it's cleaned, um, is going to be critical in hotels. Yeah. I don't think, I do think that, uh, you know, once the, vaccines here obviously people are going to go back to traveling again and people are going to be looking towards the hotels that took on these challenges and create a more seamless frictionless environment that will be the winners of the long in the long run you know earlier today i was i happened to listen on a conversation <clears throat> where the speaker from uh, green street spoke about their predictions about work from home uh and, and business travel and they were predicting that over the next few years we'll uh, end up with 60% of the workers working in the office on a full-time basis, 30% working in the office part-time basis a few days a week, one to four days a week, and 10% of the workforce just not working in an office, period. Whether they're right or wrong, whether those are the right numbers, there's certainly trends towards more uh, working remotely. So in that work remote thing, for those people who are not full-time in the office, do they, um, what, what kind of solutions do you think their employers are going to create for them uh, in the office. I'm glad you raised this. This is something that we're really focused on and really researching a lot. And I disagree with the first part of the statement about whether 60% of people are going to be working from home. There's, there's statements right out there in the, in right now in real estate saying 100% of people are going to work from home. We just did a work from home survey uh, for 5,000 workers. And what came back was that 50% of the workers want to go back to the office now. And those 50% are made up of a lot of millennials and Gen Z and Gen Y. And those Gen Z and Gen, those millennials right now are at home. They have children at home. They have parents at home. They have roommates. They're totally distracted and they want to get back to the office where they can resume, you know, quiet time in the office, a collaboration time in the office and get away from their home. So. I think this whole notion that everyone wants to work from home is just not true. On the other hand, 12% of people say, 12% say they would like to work permanently from home. So there is a group of people, mostly our age, who are saying, you know what, I've learned something here. I want to work from home. Then another about 25% say they want to work from home one or two days a week. And I think that's going to be the norm. I think we'll have our major offices right. and people want that hybrid living where you have the flexibility of working in the office three days a week or four days a week, but you'll work from home one day a week. 
And so I do think it's going to impact residential because now we're going to have to have setups for work at home environments that work for people that have that flexibility. But I don't, I, just to dispel, I don't think the office is dead. I think the office is alive and well. And frankly, I think because of spacing and what we're learning during this COVID-19, that we're going to need actually more space, not less space, for more environments that work in today's environment. Another comment that was made by the speaker, and then we'll go to Josh for some questions, but uh, was that um, some of the winners coming out of this COVID-19 uh, uh, revolution are the more suburban uh, or at least non-urban office buildings where you might have more walk-up uh, ability and less you know, uh, congestion around the elevators and other areas, uh, and that uh, it might take a little longer for the more urban dense uh, office towers to, um, to get back to normal. So time, time will tell. Very insightful. There's so much more to talk about this, but I do want to give an, an opportunity to our listeners to uh, provide some questions. So Josh, let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Gotti. Yeah, and I apologize for jumping in there. There was one that was particularly uh, relevant to what you guys were talking about related to the office changes. And actually, I'm supposed to let you know, Andy, this is from your favorite client in El Segundo. But the question, and I think, Gotti, you could answer this too, given you've both been through these, uh, these cycles before, is, you know, it sounds like there's some similarities to 9-11. And so there's some question around what are you guys seeing that happened then related to that idea that, no, everybody's going to leave the cities and we're not going to be in offices again versus what we're going through today. So, Andy, maybe you could speak to that first. And then, Gotti, you probably have some good feedback as well. Happy to. Go ahead, Andy. Yeah, no, look, 9-11 was an a, a incredible lesson uh, for us all that, uh, you know, people after 9-11, after a while, sprung back to the reality of, you know, keeping life going the way it was. So, yes, in cities like New York, there was more security in buildings, but people obviously continued to work in the same fashion they were. I think this one's a little different uh, that, you know, we're going to learn about how uh, space is used a little differently and can be uh, impacted the way we work more efficiently. So I think we're going to learn a lot. But I also think that uh, cities have gotten a really bad rap during this whole COVID-19. You know, people think that uh, it's, uh, it's density. And it's not density. It's crowding that's the issue, crowding. So if you see cities today like, many, uh, like uh, Seattle or even L.A. or Denver, they're opening up millions of uh, square feet or streets for public right-of-way. So the public right-of-way, which was just major roads and the 12-foot sidewalk, is now becoming this great public amenity space where streets are closed and people can walk and stroll, people can live, work, and play. You know, it's, it's been an amazing renaissance to see how the public realm, and look, look at restaurants today, how they're now they're spilling out into the open space. So what was, uh, you know, this idea of, of uh, of, you know, putting cities down for density. I think it's more about crowding and solving this issue of crowding and dealing with the public realm as, as a way of creating pl great places for bike paths and for strolling and for green space and amenity space. I, I, I would only add to that that after 9-11, we heard a lot of talk about New York will never be back. Nobody's going to want to live in the cities. Everybody's going to move to uh, the Sun Belt and live in suburban locations and avoid density, crowding, high, high, uh, tall buildings. And of course, that's not the way things worked out. I don't think New York is going out of style. New York may cause itself more difficulties because of uh, maybe more like fiscal um, 
uh, balancing an inability to maintain the, the great lifestyle that the city offers. I mean, 40 years ago, New York was, and, and most cities in America, were not the place where people wanted to be. And that was because the public investment in those cities just wasn't there. There wasn't a commitment or the funding for it. We are at the precipice of potentially another wave of that, just given the realities of, uh, you know, taxes and, uh, and fiscal costs. Uh, but uh, I don't. I do, I don't I do think, think that some people will want to have more suburban locations and urban locations. I think it'll be a hub and spoke kind of uh, system. You know, we've been talking about what we call the 15 minute city where people want to live, work, and play within 15 minutes walking distance from where, mm -hmm. they, are, where they live. So you're going to see much more, I believe, live, work, play scenarios where you can, within 15 minutes, be able to have your whole world around you. So, but, that, but that does not say that major cities are going away. It means there'll be neighborhoods within cities or districts within cities where you can live, work, and play and walk, walkable cities. Randall Lewis, who was one of our participants in these great mind conversations a few uh, days ago, said that his view of COVID-19 is uh, uh, the, one, of the, one of the major impacts is a great acceleration of trends that were happening anyway. Uh, and, uh, and I would add to that that also this gives an opportunity for PropTech to uh, leap forward uh, and, and maybe do in the next five months what might have taken five years to uh, actually occur. But a lot of this is just an acceleration of patterns and trends that were coming anyway. Yeah, I think building on that, though, interestingly, and maybe a nuance to the, the city discussion and, and both the crowding element you mentioned, Andy, and then also kind of the 15 minute city. So what does that mean for kind of transit long term was one of the questions here. And how does that affect uh, kind of the idea of, you know, what was getting people out of individual cars and into mass transit? Maybe now it's the autonomous you mentioned, but any thoughts there? Yeah, I've been getting a lot of questions about that. Look, I think mass transit is still extremely viable. You know, cities like New York and LA are going to have to deal with this issue starting right now about how you space people out on mass transit. But I believe mass transit is vital to, you know, to our cities and, and to how uh, the functioning of our cities. But I also believe that mobility is going to radically change. And I think within you know, within 15 years, say 15 years, by 2035, our world's going to radically change. And uh, for all you naysayers out there, there's billions and billions of dollars being spent on driverless cars. And I do believe that will change the nature of our cities. And we won't have, our city streets won't dominate our cities. It'll be, and as I mentioned before, be able to take the public realm back, the, our streets back for people, back for human experience, and not just about uh, you know, CO2 choked filled streets. And I believe that is part of our future in, in you know, in, in the near future, call it 10, 15 years. Already we have driverless deliveries already. So AVs are coming along very, very quickly. But, I'm, but that is not to say in any way that mass transportation is an important element. And I really believe LA is in a going, coming a long way with our mass transportation plan. Um, so I, I think it's, uh, it's a combination of both, mass transportation and then the innovations that are coming our way in a connected city. It's interesting. I would have expected you'd say that you would expect mass transit to uh, be less critical in the future given the innovations of, uh, of uh, automated drive, uh, driverless uh, cars and other solutions. Um, a good question from Wendy Sapino. Uh, when talking about retail malls and power centers, what do you see as the use and the need 
uh, in the future due to shopping habits turning to online uh, and uh, also uh, how will entertainment facilities uh, be affected not just by COVID-19 but also by how the world is evolving over the next 10 years. You know, retail, I, we're working uh, with many, many uh, online retailers that want, this is before COVID, that wanted a brick and mortar uh, experience. So I think it's a combination of both. I don't think that brick and mortar is going away. You're seeing some of the big boxes being impacted clearly. But I think that having the presence, having online presence and brick and mortar presence is really important for most major brands. And that's still going to be the same. Are the stores going to be smaller? Absolutely. You're not going to see these huge flagships coming out anymore. But I do think there's an opportunity for some of these retail centers to be adaptive reuse into other uses. You know, we're working right now in Los Angeles on a project on the West Side Pavilion that was a mall that's now becoming a creative office of the future. Uh, so, we're, and we're seeing a lot of this transformation taking place. And again, I, so I don't see retail uh, going away at all, or it's definitely going to get compressed, in the, especially in the U.S., which we were overbuilt on. But it's the quality and location of that retail that matters the most. And it's the integration of online and brick and mortar that's going to make the difference for these, for these stores, the, the, uh, for the retail. The question on live sports is we're working on a lot of uh, venues right now. They're actually under construction and or existing. And so... We're part of a lot of different brainstorming innovation that's going on. A lot of it is around, um, you know, creating uh, technology that will allow that, as I mentioned, for hotels, allowing for a ticketless, uh, uh, you know, uh, experience where that once you check in and you have a biometric feedback, it knows who you are, it knows your preferences, it knows what you like to the food to be delivered to you. So it, the, they're looking at a much more customized way of approaching the fan or live experience. One thing that hasn't been solved yet, obviously, is the spacing, you know, the six foot spacing. And that is the biggest issue going on right now in live entertainment and sports is how do you deal with season ticket holders where every other seat has to be left empty? And it, it, it has not been solved. But the, the, the stadiums and arenas that we're working on right now are focused in on how you can create this seamless frictionless environment for the fan experience that you, know, you won't have to touch a lot of things in order to be able to use the space. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Do you think that malls around the world um, are a thing of the past? We went from, in America, 2,000 great malls to 200 great malls. Now there's debate whether there's 20 great malls. Uh, is that an inevitable pattern? Or, or do you think this is going to reach a certain floor and then malls will re-rise again to something more than uh, perhaps where we are today? I think it's, it started to morph already before COVID, and that was this idea of mixed use. Talked about the 15-minute city, right? Everything walkable. So I don't think malls are going away, but I think they're going to be repurposed and reused into live, work, and play environments, where it combines places where people can you know, which have hotels, have residential, have retail podiums, where people live, work, and play in that environment within a vibrant community. So I don't think it's going away. I do think the suburban mall, if that's what you're referring to, the suburban mall, has major issues to it, and there's going to have to be adaptive reuse to major parts of that mall. I don't think the mall's necessarily going away because, as I mentioned before, retails, the, the best retails will still be in business and be, still be 
uh, you know, building stores, but in a very much different way. But right? I do you, believe mixed use is really, really part of that answer, that solution. So I, I can certainly see that, but a mall, a proper mall to survive needs about a million visitors per month on average. Uh, so, you know, you can build a lot of hotel rooms, office buildings, and apartment towers on top of a mall or on a mall site, but that's not gonna generate a million visitors per, per month, right? So uh, you still believe that those destination uh, visitors will come to those malls that are in the right settings. If, if in the right location, and many aren't in the right location, but the ones that are, that are you know, within that you know, 15 minute, 30 minute, or 30 minute drive, let's say, that are strategically located, that have the right mix of tenants, which is really important. The mix of tenants are really important within that mall. It'll, it'll do really well. But I do also think that along with these malls, we're going to have a lot more housing around those, more population that's going to use it on a day and night use, not just one visit at a time. So we, agree. we, we work with, use. I suspect, pretty much every major mall owner in America on what can we do with our excess development rights or the possibility. You know, I'm sure you are too. So Exactly. Um, we're, uh, we're planning many of those out parcels right now to densify right. and right. to create fill those niches in, you know, midweek as an example, you know, how do you, how do you deal with midweek versus weekend, peak right. hours and so forth. And also the reuse of the emptied out department store boxes, uh, which, which are happening more and more. Josh, any other questions before we wrap it up? Yeah, I'll give you uh, well one and then we'll finish on a fun one, but you know, there's, we talked a lot about technology and kind of what it's going to do to the end user experience. But one thing we haven't really touched on Andy is how it's impacted your guys business today. I mean, in terms of even things like contracting or BIM or modeling, a lot of the things that you typically often are doing as an architectural firm, have you guys found using technology has been helpful? It's been a, a struggle. What, what's sort of that been like at a large firm like Ensler? It's been incredible for us, actually. And actually, uh, you know, we, we have offices in Shanghai and Beijing and, and Tokyo and Hong Kong. And so um, when COVID hit China, uh, we quickly, we knew before most everyone else that we had to get all our drawings up onto the cloud. And so uh, we were, you know, we really rushed over those three months from January to, Feb to March, getting all our drawings up on the cloud to be able to deliver seamlessly for our clients. And BIM and all the great technologies we're using have been phenomenal in this medium. My firm was already working in this medium already. In fact, for me personally, because we have 50 offices around the world, I was on calls like this probably half my time anyway. So we were very used to it, but the idea of all the technology on the cloud and the ability to deliver seamlessly around the globe for our clients in this medium has been amazing. I mean, we're doing virtual reality 3D tours in this medium for our clients. I have calls every day where I'm talking with Saudi Arabia or I'm talking with China or Singapore. And it's, what's been amazing for us as a global firm is it's now become so seamless that clients' expectations are that we can deliver anywhere in the world and that you can deliver it right to their desktop. So it's been phenomenal. All the buildup of the technologies that we've been working with over the years, this COVID-19 has forced us uh, to deliver it seamlessly and it's worked famously for us. And I'm so proud of our teams. You know, on some calls we're on, we have five offices, you know, 10 offices on a call. We have, you know, 50 little pictures on a screen. And in the middle of the screen is the rendering of the project. And our clients are located in three or four different countries. And it's, uh, it, it's an amazing uh, experience. It, it gives you chills to know 
that we've progressed this far in our field. And now we're moving towards the next iteration, which is going to be able to deliver 4D for our clients. Uh, and by the way, I should even mention for those of you who have projects under construction, we're able to, with an iPad, be able to beam conditions in the field out to the you know, people at home to be able to solve problems under construction. So even construction sites have worked much more seamlessly this time. We've been able to keep projects moving along. All right, one last one and I'll throw it to, I was gonna give it to Gotti to, to end, but just to bring it back full circle, going back to the dairy shop, you mentioned uh, you'd tell us your favorite cheese. So that's the last question. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Every cheese, that's my problem. I eat too much cheese. Uh, you know, a, a great sharp cheddar cheese is unbelievable. When you get the right cheddar cheese, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. Thanks for asking that question. <laughs> Whoever asked that question. We'll have to do a cheese tasting uh, uh, evening. Absolutely. Let's do it. Alex Rose did comment that uh, while the technology enables the communication and transfer of information and collaboration, nothing beats sitting in the room side by side, face to face and having a, an in-person meeting. Oh. I, I totally echo Alex, uh, and I've been in many meetings with Alex, and I couldn't agree more with him on that. that. And that's why I believe, again, back to the office again, why the office is not dead, because we, we cannot, we can have meetings like this. And by the way, we're all home right now, so we all know we can contact everyone. The minute we start going half back to the office, right. it starts to fall, falls apart. But the one thing we lack on a meeting like this is that moment when I'm asking you about your family or how you've been or you know, your experience of life. We're, right now we're living in a world of half an hour, hour long meetings and then we're on to the next one. Right. And it's that ubiquitous you know, in between time that makes all the difference in the world in collaboration and you know, incredible relationships. It's hard to build a relationship on a video screen like this. It is indeed. I, I, I have a long list of topics that I'd love to talk to you more about, but uh, speaking of our long meetings, this was an hour long and uh, was action-packed, information-packed. Andy, you uh, once again uh, proved that the, the wisdom, the experience, the knowledge, and the generosity in which you're willing to share them all with us and with everybody else. So I thank you very much. We're indebted to you, and I hope to have you back to uh, another conversation in the not-too-distant future. Gotti, kudos to you for putting this together. Really, congratulations. And thank you for all of your leadership in real estate and in our community. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Josh. Really appreciate your leadership. You're too kind. So long, Andy. Be well and be safe. Bye-bye. Take care.